Welcome back yet again to another edition of Trash Future, that podcast you're listening to now. I am Riley. You may remember me from every previous episode of this podcast. I am joined by Milo Edwards, who's too busy texting. Hey, it's me. I was texting your mom, Riley, and and just saying, what a beautiful young man you've become. (laughs) Wholesome. So there you go. You feel silly now, don't you? (laughs) Well, no, it's just, you know, it's very Hollywood of you texting my mom. Well, it's Hollywood ex- Edwards over Everyone here. Everyone in Hollywood films is always texting Riley's mom. No one knows why. It's a really <laughs> weird trope that they've come up with. No one gets it. Um, we also, of course, have Nate, who is ably board riding. Uh, yeah, and also, Riley, you say that you may remember me from every episode, but there was, in fact, the uh, the episode about Lionel Shriver that you weren't here for that we ran ourselves, and it was basically nice future, uh-huh. uh, but also extremely mm-hmm. disorganized because we hadn't spent three hours making the notes, and so we appreciated you in your absence. Uh, because when you do all the work, we can just misbehave the whole time. Yes, mm. the children. Mm. Ah, the children. Uh, and the final of the children, of course, is Alice uh, in Glasgow. Yes. Alice, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Milo, stop texting Riley's mum. Her phone keeps going off and it's interrupting my mic. <laughs> Wait, are we, we love to see it. Are we implying that Alice is my mother? No, no we're Alice implying that I was in the room with your mom. Oh, yeah, okay. I was doing being nice with your mom, being hmm, friends with your exactly. mom. Oh, wait, Riley's Riley's mom is Alice's dick doctor. <laughs> <laughs> welcome, welcome, welcome to the trash future version of a Ronald Reynolds movie. You yeah. know, it's all good. Mm, Making some out. cum jokes. Here we go. Um, and we're also joined. Riley is played by Owen Wilson. <laughs> Wow, we're also wow. we're also I never joined. Knew my mom was a dick doctor. <laughs> That's crazy. How I got these scars. Your mom's, yeah. Look, <laughs> every, everyone's <laughs> everyone's just Joker. Everyone is just you a know? different kind of Joker. Mm, that's true. You know how I got this spare room <laughs> in a house with some newlyweds? Indeed. Um, anyway, but we are also joined. We are also joined by Ollie Thorne, who you may also know as the. Uh, force behind Philosophy Tube on YouTube. Ollie, how's it going? It's going very well, thanks. I've never been described as a force before, but yeah. I quite like that. That's mm. yeah. very cool. Very yeah. masculine. Yeah. Yes. Uh, oh, that, that comes up later. Damn. Surround, I penetrate, I bind the galaxy together. Mm. Yeah. Yes, like the space is, um, force. <laughs> yes, uh, Ollie, Ollie's... Unfortunately, Ollie's not the cool force from the early movies. He's the midichlorians force from the bad prequels. Yep. I've so, come back and I'm significantly more powered up than I used to be. Significantly more powered up, but yet somehow related to like a blood disease. Mm. Like, a, like a freshly recharged vibrator. Mm. Ah, yes. Uh, who, do, who doesn't love the smell of a freshly recharged vibrator, except who doesn't love that more than Neil deGrasse Tyson? That was a beautiful segue, to, by the way. Yes. Beautiful. <laughs> one, of, one of the greatest I've ever done. He would regard that as a misuse of science. Uh, yeah, he'd say, uh, uh, actually, uh, I like to think of beauty uh, in the nebulas and the stars, not mm. in your ham-fisted segues, Riley. So, Neil deGrasse Tyson said, we learn about the expanding universe, we learn about quantum physics, each of which falls so far out of what you can deduce from your armchair that the whole community of philosophers was rendered essentially obsolete. Now, Ollie, I'm very sorry that you've made your way down all the way to Whitechapel, only to learn that your entire field and career is all obsolete, which is a bummer, and I'm very sorry. I know, I'm gutted. At least I've got YouTube and acting to fall back on, both notoriously stable careers. Uh, exactly. You can pivot to being a Nazi. It's always it's always there as an option. It's always an option on YouTube. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Neil, Neil deGrasse Tyson just watch it, watching a, a a play, being like, "Well, 
Obviously, they're actors. Why am I even watching this? <laughs> <laughs> I prefer the idea that he's watching it and like that Ham- the ghost of Hamlet's father comes on and he's like scared. <laughs> he's just like, oh god, like, it's real. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the evidence of my if the evidence of my eyes does not deceive me. That does appear to be a ghost on stage. Why is everybody panicking? <laughs> he's an empiricist to such an extent that anything he sees, he believes is real. Like anytime he watches anime, he is in like full bore seizure by the end. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I. Um, Ollie, just opening this episode right on, because we're talking about scientism, the worship of science as some kind of idea. People who fucking love science, if you will. Mm. What do you think Neil deGrasse Tyson means when he says that uh, physics has essentially made philosophy obsolete? Uh, I think he means that he doesn't want to read philosophy. Yes. Well, who, mean- who's <laughs> among us? Oi! <laughs> I recognise that I have some very niche interests, right? <laughs> it's also weird to me, just just on just on like first reading on the, weird in the sense that he says like, oh well, you know, there are these things about like incredibly complex quantum physics that you couldn't work out by doing philosophy. Therefore, philosophy is obsolete. He's not even saying therefore philosophy is obsolete as far as regards quantum physics. He's saying like therefore philosophy is obsolete, like because we have quantum physics, no one needs to think about like w- like moral dilemmas or like. Like, no, quantum physics is the only thing that matters. No one, no one's ever going to have like you know the meaning of life questions anymore. That's not going to happen. Philosophers have been sitting around like trying to do quantum physics for ages, the like, whole time. He may as well just said, "Well, this is this is made painting." Obviously, yeah. yeah. He's yeah. like, "Is it this is made painting obsolete?" Because yeah. it's like, what, yeah. "What are you talking about?" Not Neil? A single Ariana Grande song has gotten us a step closer, <laughs> a single step closer to finding out, you know, what the Higgs boson particle is, and therefore she is obsolete. But <laughs> also the presumption that like everything would be solved if we could only figure that out. It's like, ah, yeah, yeah, we've we've mm. solved the Higgs boson. Great, that, that's fixed it. Yep. Nice. Exactly. I'll, I'll, call, yeah. I'll call ISIS. I'll tell them to knock it off. Mm. Mm. There are no. It's um. Well, I think the one of the key elements of the of the scientist. I say. They're not, it's not they're not scientists, they're scientists, essentially. Mm. Just uh, the people who measure the science. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, one of the things that the scientists really love is they love talking about the, the idea that there is some grand community of humanity that can be united on the basis of scientific knowledge because they all have an agreement on what's true because what's true is can be me- what's knowable is true is something that can be measured. And they are also very dismissive of anything subjective and dismiss philosophy as subjective. But philosophical and scientific knowledge are just distinct ways of knowing things. And this should be something of interest to people on the left, specifically because so often liberals like, specifically liberals, like to claim that they have some, knowledge, some privileged knowledge of what works versus what they dismiss as the fantasism of moral purity on the left. Oh, the left just likes to think about cool ideas. We liberals know that means testing is what we need mm. to do because we have the evidence-based knowledge. Just, just remembered an extremely cursed piece of like naughty's sloganeering with "reality has a liberal bias." Often oh found in the bios of people on Twitter that are mm. extremely good at making very wise points that actually apply to the world we live in. <laughs> so I wanted to sort of go into a little bit like. What is philosophical versus scientific knowledge? Is that is that a useful distinction to draw? Uh, the thing is, I'm 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 hesitant to like to just spend the whole episode dunking on Neil deGrasse Tyson. Like fun as it fun as it would be, and you know the Stephen Hawking's and all your other scientists were like, oh, philosophy's dead. Philosophy's been pronounced dead many 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 times, but it's it's like Goku. You know, you pronounce it dead and then it comes back stronger. Mm. Um, so as fun as it would be to just spend the whole episode ragging on him. I do think that the the scientists who say like, oh, philosophy's dead and it's not really relevant and philosophical knowledge isn't what it's all cracked up to be, 
there is the grain of a point in there, which is that for a long time, very much like science, actually, um, philosophy, especially in the academy, has been the province of mainly white dudes, and it hasn't served the interests of a global majority. Um, and you know, like some some inventions of science and so on uh, have have trickled down. Um, but we could talk about like systemic critiques of science, capital S, as an institution. Um, but when people say that like philosophy isn't relevant, I think there's there's actually something to that. And there is. It's not just like oh, these liberals don't know like philosophy. Like if they could only go to elite universities and read philosophy, they'd realize how like Kant is actually the key. It's like well, no, you kind of actually have to work to make Kant relevant to the global majority of people, which is like what my show tries to do and fails in interesting ways to do. Um, so yeah, like I think there are people like, to a degree, there are people who, who uh, just want science to be like, oh, like, there's no, no political questions, no philosophical questions, no questions of like meaning or what we should be doing. Um, but I do like, want to flag up early in the podcast that like, there is the beginnings of, of a point here, and it's a point that I've, I've made on my show before as well. Um, but I think one of the... Um one of the key distinctions also I, I want to, to bring out, and this is not just about the practice of philosophy and the practice of science, but what philosophical knowledge and what scientific knowledge is, right? Where scientific knowledge usually is claimed to be the knowledge that comes to you from some kind of experience. I, um, I look at a particle, a particle accelerator and I see that there is a sensor that detects a Higgs boson. But philosophical knowledge comes from reflection, communication. It's sort of more. It is seen as more socially constructed, and therefore, to the scientician, um, can often be dismissed as worth less, right? Yeah, I mean, I I often do run into this assumption that like the tools with which we use to with which we do science are themselves somehow philosophically neutral, uh, that they don't contain any philosophy within them. Um, mm. Whereas, of course, you know, if you build a machine to do a job, then you have already, for instance, presumed that the job is worth doing. So there's this um, there's this great philosopher of uh, technology called Evgeny Morozov, um, who says that when you build a tool, whether that's like a literal tool, like a machine, or even just like a concept to do a job, mm. once you built it, it becomes very very hard to question whether or not the job needs doing in the first place. Um, so, like for instance, the if dick you, sucking machine, the dick yeah. sucking machine, or, or, absolutely. Or, or the they never asked them. if they should; they only asked if they could. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, the dick sucking machine, perfect. Like you, you have presumed that dicks need to be sucked. Um, mm. You know, or, or for instance, if you have designed a set of skull calipers and you've got like a whole industry producing skull calipers, you it's very difficult to then go, hang on a minute, what are we doing? Why are we building these? These are useless. Suddenly you're on the tube just measuring people. Just, just measuring skulls, yeah. And then you have to design like a whole new set of massive skull calipers to measure my head because it's enormous. Um, <laughs> and this is, has particular relevance to things like algorithms. Um, if you, for instance, uh, an example I've talked about, I did a lecture at The Hague a while ago about the use of AI in warfare. Um, and they're they're designing algorithms now that can recognize people who are on kill lists from satellite photos and like flag it up on the computer. So the drone operator gets like a this guy's on a kill list, yes or no. Um, just gets a that, printout of all of your tweets and just yeah, be like, but he yeah. just gets a notification on his phone saying this man's on a kill list. Uh, do, do you wish to kill him or not? Um, and once you do that, like the the algorithm doesn't stop to question why is this guy on a kill list? Why do we have kill lists? Mm. Is this right? Should we be doing this? Like, doesn't this guy get a trial? What the hell's going on here? When the more you streamline it streamline it, the more difficult it becomes to question it. Um, so there's this presumption, I think, that if it can be measured or if there's some kind of machine that does it, then it's just kind of value neutral. Um, mm. But actually, you're basically just like putting a lot of philosophy into the machine and then not looking at it. I've heard this also uh, with reference to things like 
facial recognition software where it's designed with a specific race in mind or when it's designed with a certain set of attributes in mind. Um, And if you look at it, it winds up flagging people or being unable to read people's faces or get information because of the fact that they only programmed it with the people who worked at the company who were all probably white or white and East Asian in the United States. And so as a result, you know, this winds up saying, here's this perfect set of tools and they can produce this result because they don't make mistakes. It's, it's absolutely analytical. But it, because of the way that it's the, the, the premise that it's, it's programmed from, it winds up just hard coding the things that are the, the inequities mm. that are already there. And it's like, the, it seems to me that this winds up being used to dismiss any kind of argument for subjectivity because it's like, well, no, the machine doesn't make a mistake. It's not subjective. It can't be subjective. But it's weird how this idea comes forth that uh, the people who programmed it can't they could not have had inherent biases and that their their review process couldn't have had inherent bias could not have had inherent biases because the end result is a machine that apparently has no no subjectivity it just looks for zeros and ones and and yet it keeps reproducing these same problems over and over again well the other thing right is that this isn't just something that you can get with technology that you can build and put in your hand or even algorithms um and it's and these biases or preferences can be hard coded into institutions as well as soon as you build a DWP with a means testing department, it becomes very difficult to think about a, ver- a world in which you don't means test benefits. Mm. Once your hospital has a billing department, closing it down would be unthinkable because, well, how do we get money in? Well, that would lose um, jobs. Yeah, exactly. That, yeah. That's, you can apply yeah. it to concepts as well. Like, yeah. like biologists know that the, the concept of race, like biologically, is like, it's like what is that? Um, but it still gets like cited and referenced in mm. papers and like used as a shorthand for all kinds of stuff. And it gets used as a shorthand for people designing studies. They'll sometimes categorize like participants by race and so on, even though biologically it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And if you mm. once you like design even a concept to do that kind of work, it's very very difficult mm. to get rid of it unless you do philosophy, which of course Neil deGrasse Tyson would prefer oh, not to do. What? Oh I, no! I, a little alert came up on my computer. Everyone, oh, fuck! We've all been doing grievance studies. Oh no! Oh, oh no! It turns out that by that by highlighting all of these ways in which science itself can be a deeply, deeply biased, imperfect, and philosophically loaded form of inquiry, we went and did a dang grievance study. Oh, mm. I hate doing a meta-analysis of all the lightsabers I've collected. <laughs> um, we should have just stuck to the only thing that science is, adding two very large numbers together. <laughs> Look, <laughs> yeah. scientists are- you're, you're trying to do things like-, like like free like women and people of color from uh, centuries old systems of injustice yet there are scientists who right now are counting to a quadrillion yeah exactly but they're wearing safety goggles because <laughs> they take this stuff seriously um when even just going back to what ollie said initially that the idea actually that science and philosophy are separate disciplines completely rides roughshod over like the history of science but of course no science titians ever learn any history because the past is bad and it's where people are all dumb and no one did you know because that was before we invented being smart right uh before we invented the i fucking love facebook science page um and so like yeah i mean obviously like the concept of science Science was invented by philosophers who were trying to apply philosophy to like the empirical world. It's like that that really really scary bit in Fallout Four, where if you go if you find the like the technologically advanced super society of scientists who just like stay in a bunker and do maths and science all day, mm. and then they're building some kind of like database, and you say, "What do you guys have like a secret police?" and the scientist guy goes. I'm not sure if that's some kind of reference to the pre-war times, but like that doesn't sound so bad. It's like, oh my god, you've never studied any history. These people need to die. All of yeah. you. Like, mm. <laughs> that was the moment where I was like, I've chosen my path for the rest of this game. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I find it very interesting, Milo, that you brought up the moment we invented being smart mm. because the man himself, Mister Intelligence Two, Stephen Pinker, is now entering our story. Oh, I oh, missed no. him. 
He's, he's coming in on his cloud ship. So mm. one of the inciting incidents for this episode on scientism was the small furor that erupted among the sort of Claire Laymans and Steven Pinkers of the world around an essay in the journal Nature by philosopher of science Nicholas Comfort, who was reflecting on the development of science <laughs> and how name. it's changed. Very good name. <laughs> how it's he also invented, he also yeah, invented the fabric softener. <laughs> <laughs> um, how, and how the development of science has changed human nature, if, if there can be said to be such a thing. So here's a core paragraph of this essay, and this is a, this is a good reading, everyone, so mm. uh, safety goggles on. Okay. Most of these age of reason notions of identity and the dominant sci-fi scenarios of post-human futures have been developed by university-educated men who were not disabled and who hailed from the middle and upper classes of the wealthy nations of the global north. Their ideas reflect not only the findings, but also the values of those who have for too long commanded the science system, positivist, reductionist, and focused on dominating nature. Those who control the means of sequence production get to write the story. And I think those, those three concepts, positivist, reductionist, and dominating nature, are very useful when we want to think of what science means to I fucking love science people. And you're saying this is what got Claire Lehman et al. furious. Yes, because it dared question if they fucking love science. Mm -hmm. Again, though, I do want to flag up that you could make that same critique of a lot of academic philosophy of the last 200 years. Oh, of course. Mm. I think, but the, the key thing is, they're not dismissing academic philosophy. What they're doing is they're trying to dismiss gender studies, post-colonial theory, anything that wants to question, say, the validity of someone who is designing an app to measure someone's skull. But also it's interesting, too, because this is the stuff that gets kind of workshopped through right-wing headlines to the point where it becomes this outrage, like shareable content, where some, uh, the argument you're putting forth right there about it's it's not a question of dismissing everything that has previously existed or been studied, but rather to try to broaden the search. And that turns into, these disgusting people want to ban Plato because he was a white man. And it always turns out that way. And you see it in headlines in the sun. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's weird because on its face, it's it's a pretty benign thing to be asking. It's saying, look, look at the potential for, uh, I don't know, alternate uh, alternate sources that go beyond a, a sort of canonical understanding of what's important. And instead, it gets turned into like disgusting libs. And you see it over and over again, but it seems like it's absolutely a recipe for like right wing outrage and clicks on pages and stuff like that. But that article has a quote from a Mr. Christopher Fraudy Miglia from Jersey. It was like, I can't believe this. They're trying to, bla they're trying to ban Plato because he's a white man. He was Italian. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, Greeks, it's, the original Italian. Exactly. It's really bizarre as well that they, they say, like, well, we don't want to do like post-colonial thing. We don't want, to do, don't want to do any of that. It's like, but in a lot of ways, we already do it. Like, one of the things that I do on my show is, is try and show people like, look, you're already doing philosophy. Like, I talk about... Um, so, uh, for instance, Miranda Fricker's concept of epistemic injustice, right? Sounds very technical. Sounds like, oh, God, what the hell is epistemic injustice? If you understand the Me Too movement, you understand Miranda Fricker. And if you understand Fricker, you can understand Me Too. And if you understand them both, you can, like, they reflect off each other and you can, you can get, like, a richer understanding of it. It's like, you don't need to know all the context of what Shakespeare was writing, but if mm. you do, you'll get, like, more out of it, right? Um, so when people say, oh, we don't, don't want to do this, we don't want to listen to like, the last 50 years, like sometimes even further, people are like 50, 60 years of philosophy, we don't want to do it. It's like, why not? Because you are, you are already kind of doing it. And it's like, if you only got a little bit curious, you, you could probably enjoy yourself a lot more. <laughs> mm. Mm. I mean, philosophy I as a mirror um, is always going to be uncomfortable to these people because they don't want to confront the idea that 
putting Joker makeup on here, we live in a society, right? Mm. <laughs> As we a do counterpoint do to this, just over two years ago, Riley suggested to me over coffee that we start a podcast together and, you know, dive more deeply into all of this politics and stuff and technology and all that shit. And I have to say, I, I hate it. I don't, I, it's, nothing has made me feel worse. Yeah, he's just <laughs> inflicting <laughs> a the exam of life is actually not worth living. <laughs> no, it isn't. I can see why Socrates drank that shit, you know? Yeah. I've, been doing, I've been doing philosophy on YouTube for six years. And yeah, mm. I entirely agree. I look how old I look. <laughs> so I'm 26. I look about 39. It's yeah. a beard. Um, Damn. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it is diff, and I think these people, a lot of what they want to do, one of their reasons that they're so resistant to the idea of introducing something like a post-colonial perspective into not even into their study, just of even hearing someone suggest that the British Empire wasn't entirely benign because of the railroads is it makes them confront an ugly truth about themselves and their history and one that they've been reassured was not there for so long, which is why I think they're so comfortable with a system of knowledge that is positivist, reductionist, and focused on dominating nature because it says, because it says all of these people who are suggesting that the observed evidence is wrong are just trying to derail science because they have some kind of plot. I mean, that's why it usually they usually say, oh, it, they're Marxists who feel guilty about the West. And so they want to denigrate our future by preventing um, by preventing us from building a, an observatory on like um, uh, uh, Mount Akia. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do want to, to denigrate the future of the West, but that's not yeah. really relevant. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, to be clear, we all want to do that. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. But of that's course. because we're trash. Um, <laughs> well, it's interesting that, that people who are often very hostile to philosophy, sometimes view critique as destruction. Um, so if you say, if you sort of bring up Kant's sexism or Kant's racism, they go, what are you trying to ban Kant? Why are you not I'm, not, I'm not trying to ban him. I'm not saying we shouldn't yeah, teach we him. We are. I'm saying that actually, well, yeah, I know. I, well, well, obviously wait. I am. But, <laughs> you know, I pretend that I'm not. And I said, no, because once you, for instance, um, look at Kant's history of sexism, it opens up an entirely new way of critiquing his philosophy and understanding it. Like once you understand that Kant like left out um, a lot of the experience of people who, who weren't men, and once you understand the feminist critique, that a lot of the the supporting work, like the cleaning and the caring, that goes into enabling what Kant saw as a, a natural like autonomy, like a state of autonomy, you open up a whole new way of critiquing his philosophy. Um, Dorothy Roberts is a is a philosopher of science who talks about the concept of race. Um, she has a book called Fatal Invention. Once you understand, she's not trying to say let's never do biology, let's never do pharmacology again. She's saying that if we bear this in mind, we can do it better. And people mm. instead, people are like, oh, why are you trying to destroy it? Trying to just I'm not. I'm just trying to prevent it from ossifying. I also appreciate that the 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 voice of the person opposing this has a question time audience member voice in the way that you're phrasing it because it does seem to be like that's the kind of voice that seems to be speaking up against is like someone who's got a kind of face value understanding of the debate taking place and just gets furious at it and invariably it winds up being I don't know like kind of getting shouted down when in fact this is just all this is asking i mean and correct me if i'm wrong here is like an exploration of perhaps more nuance or the idea that like an alternate lens exists with which to look at it that doesn't obviate all the other views that have existed previously well i just don't understand why it is that we have to ban science because without <laughs> science we wouldn't have things like the toaster an uncomplicatedly excellent invention that improves our daily lives and i think that if mr corbyn was serious <laughs> about improving the lives of working people in this country he would admit that he owns a toaster <laughs> and i just think that it's important that we hear from mr corbyn's office whether or 
or not he does own a toaster, the message loud and clear about what his position on the toaster is. And then there would be like a smattering of applause from like extremely overweight people. <laughs> it's it's busy town. The car right? is like Marjorie like... Turf Bangs from Kent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. but you have this busy town idea, right? Where you have a bunch of a bunch of scientists all wearing lab coats who work in a big building doing science, adding big numbers together. With a big worm in yeah. glasses. And, and if they have to think about things like racism, then they're not going to have as much time and they're going to get distracted and they're not going to invent the toaster. Yeah, and then the, <laughs> just and then, looking at a gollywog and scratching their heads. <laughs> and, and, yeah, and just a big, big blackboard s- drawing. And then the, they won't be able to put together the volcano with baking soda and vinegar mm, in time. Yeah, exactly. We, we but, smash cut to the laboratoire Garnier, where French scientists have been working on racism for years. <laughs> um, they're just like drawing like, cartoons of Mohammed with a little like molecules. Yeah. It's like ah no. So this this way of seeing the world, I said this earlier: uh, positivist, reductionist, and dominating nature. What we mean by that is positivist. It just it it looks at something and then says, "Well, that's the evidence. What I see in front of me. There is no more nothing more complicated than that, really." Um, reductionist means you're aiming to understand something by breaking it apart, breaking it apart, breaking it apart, and then making reference to its smallest um, smallest bit. And dominating nature means that what you're doing is you're identifying things and breaking them up in order to dominate and control them. And putting the planet in a dick cage, obviously. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> and frequently, by nature, historically, we've meant other people. So... If we want to think about eugenics, right? Eugenics aims to transform lesser humans into greater and is a project of greater humans who that is then being done to lesser humans. And we know they're lesser because they live in a lower standard of living than us. Mm. And we know that standard of living is lower because we've looked at how electrified their towns are or whatever mm. and counted fewer electric wires in them. People so that, who eat pot noodles, stuff so like that. You know. That's a positivist, reductionist, and dominating of nature way to look at something like a problem of underdevelopment where you can say, well, clearly it's to do with race because look, they're different, et cetera, et cetera. And when you sort of, and if this is the kind of, of way that they're, that the I fucking love science people see the world, then it's very easy to, 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 to dismiss as, well, nonsense. Well, it's mm. interesting that Milo brought up putting the planet in a dick gauge because um, it's, <laughs> yes, I agree. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a, a salient point. It's a field that's expanded a lot in, in philosophy mm. in the last few years, um, like uh, climate philosophy and, and the issue of climate justice. Um, there's a philosopher called Timothy Morton who um, I was reminded of when you talked about the domination of nature really being the domination of other people, um, not in a fun way, and uh, who talks mm. about that like um, we're, we're much more a part of nature than a lot of scientific discourse would lead us to believe. And something that I pointed out in my video on on Timothy Morton, his ideas is that actually this is something that indigenous communities around the world have been pointing out for centuries. A lot of the key philosophical points he made have actually been being made for the last two hundred years, but people ignore it. Um, so yeah, it's it's yeah the dom- uh, the domination of nature really reminds me of that because again, you can critique philosophy for this. This isn't just a critique of science; it's a critique of philosophy as well, and and the way that you know people tend not to listen all that. You know, people that listen to Timothy Morton, like he's this big superstar of climate science and philosophy right now, mm. but he's uh, he's saying interesting things that, that but that have been said before. Um, something I'm like keen to point out though is like we've talked a lot about the imaginary question time person. We've said like, oh they and these people think this, and isn't it very funny? I, you know, just just to just to play fair, who who we, like, can we get just specific? Like, who are we talking about here? Because I, you know, I'm reluctant to tilt at windmills. Sure. Well, actually, I 
I have some some readings from people who do say all of this stuff. I know I was setting you up for just that. I was looking over your shoulder. Well, and it's been like, here we go. Peek behind well, the scenes. Yeah. Well, well, Ollie. Well, well, random audience member. Funny you should ask if it cuts, dices, and juices. <laughs> um, as soon as you said you weren't going to tell a windmills, Jolian Morm logged yes. off. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> windmill. I will Damn. be tilted at. Yeah. So, um. Here, this is this is this idea is responded to. It's defended. This this scientism is defended by Jerry Coyne, a bosom chum and frequent defender of Steven Pinker, um, and specifically who wrote entire blog posts about how actually Steven Pinker's association with Epstein was good. Damn, well, it's just science. Yeah, it's he was science. just trying to educate Jeffrey Epstein. He was just trying to see how many Jeffrey Epstein's there are and how <laughs> worried we should be as a society. Well, as philosophers are all worried about how many Epstein's can dance on the head of a pin. Mm. <laughs> You're just exactly. of Epstein-ness, and it goes up. Yeah. Uh oh. So <laughs> he's trying to use an atomic clock to work out what the age of consent should be. <laughs> he's like got two sets of identical twins. One of them on a light speed ship. So if, it come, if, they, if you put one identical twin on a light speed ship that orbits Earth, can you fuck them when they get back? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and these are the difficult questions that that were lo- that Jeffrey Epstein was trying to answer. Anyway, so. Uh, Jerry Coyne writes, so if scientism is bad for society and the lubrications of able-bodied white men, lol, don't want to hear that from an (laughs) Epstein friend, telling, (laughs) and the lubrications of able-bodied white men who went to college are determining our future, what can we do? What is Nicholas Comfort's alternative? He offers none. All he does is give us an example of how liberation from science leads to some kind of enlightenment for disabled people. Is this better for disabled people than the many scientists and technologists working on curing disabilities or making it easier for disabled people? And yes, many of these benefactors are white men who went to college. Yes, it is. Like, shut up and do as you're told. Yeah, essentially, yeah. Why, why don't those uppity, non-college-educated scientists just stop making a problem for us? Again, mm. it's ve- again, he's doing philosophy without even realizing it. It's, it's very, very telling. Are you saying he- that actually it's all grievance studies, even STEM? Yes, when everything's mm. grievance studies, nothing is. Um, no, it's it's very telling that he he talks about um, scientists making things better for disabled people, and like that's the way it is, like from top down, rather than hey, what about all the scientists who have disabilities, or what about all mm. the disabled people who aren't scientists who are getting together and organizing and advancing their own rights by like protest and struggle? It's very telling that he sees it as like scientists are in the lab and they are doing the good stuff, and then they then it trickles down to us and they 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 bestow upon us the wonders of the age. Like who tells the scientists to? Invent like a Professor X floating wheelchair for disabled mm. people. Like, I do love they my just maglev do it? Wheelchair. Do they just? Someone should do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Number one, uh, get on that. Mm. Uh, number two, like, does does he think that science just sort of occurs naturally, and that we have to sort of just get out of the way? Mm. Yeah, exactly. Because science is a fact, whereas everything else is a feeling. <laughs> it's like a really boring version <laughs> the of the two, purge, the... where it's just a bunch of scientists doing illegal research. <laughs> <with Tony Brooks. laughs> the two genders: scientist and disabled person. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, that, that's a porno I've not seen. Mm. Um, watching watching a. Ver- version of The Simpsons edited by Neil deGrasse Tyson where Kirk Van Houten sings Can I Borrow a Science? Um, <laughs> but also I think it goes back again to what Ollie was saying earlier about the fact that like this misunderstanding critique for destruction like them saying well maybe science could be more inclusive of the following things oh oh you don't like science now oh we'll get rid of the polio vaccine shall we see how you like it then you're like no actually we were going to keep the polio vaccine no it's gone i've forgotten it already i've destroyed every record of the polio vaccine good luck reinventing that i'm just going to turn off the gravity if you're not going to want switch on there's going to be no more mass there's going to be no more no more sun we're switching off the sun now 
now because you can't fucking handle it. Wait, oh, you, I you, hope you can d- turn gravity off. <laughs> I hope you it. didn't enjoy Back to Winnipeg. I hope you didn't enjoy counting over a hundred because every number <laughs> over a hundred is science, buddy. It's gone. Numbers under a hundred are just like no. That's just like commerce. Just that's yeah. economics. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Mm-hmm. So. One of the key mistakes of scientism is that it mistakes the apparent for the actual. Um, So this is what uh, Coyne goes on to say. Just because the scientists who held the tripartite value of reason, science, and humanism held slaves doesn't mean that those values do not call for the killing of aristocrats or the enslavement of others. So it's a bad sentence, I'll give you. Mm -hmm. But what he's trying to say is just because is that... I just because that people have been enslaved under the val under the tripartite values of reason, science, and humanism doesn't mean that the values of reason, science, and humanism are inherently directed towards enslaving people, which is a very, very, very stupid argument. But it also seems to imply that if those values are represented by this conduct, then they can exist in a system in which some people are just an outgroup that get to be slaves and have no rights. I'm like, but it's still really logical. There's a lot of reason involved. And oh. we were doing science because we were counting above 100. So I mean, <laughs> it protects all the boxes. Oh, that oh, were loads of those slaves. Oh, boy. Nate, some of us, we had people counting them all day. Nate, you, I've, I've, I don't think you could have set up the next paragraph better. So I'm going to go into it now. And this actually isn't from the same article. This is from an article called In Defense of Scientism from, where else, Quillette. Our favorite oh, big brain, brain review. Expanding. Begin now. However, I must add, as much the as it pains me to. sounds like a brand of razor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I must add, as much or as it. Or a very, very tiny feather pen. <laughs> I must add, as much as it pains me to, that Quillette also published a rejoinder to this article that wasn't bad. So and it had six blades. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was the best. It had a that moisturizing it, strip. It yeah. was the best that a man, man, I said, could get. Shaves <laughs> your brain very smooth. <laughs> <laughs> so this is from the article in defense of scientism. Although eugenics, social Darwinism, and quote-unquote scientific racism are often used to besmirch the reputation of science, they in fact illustrate why science is so important. Social Darwinism, for example, wasn't really a science because it did not promote a judicious approach to policy determined by a careful study of outcomes. You know what this is? Rather, it promoted a values-based approach to policy determined by a priori philosophical and moral assumptions. You know what this is? This is the thing that we accuse... Um, that they accuse, like, socialists of doing, of being like, yeah. oh, well, that wasn't real communism. Yeah, so uh, Francis Galton was trying to do science in one country. That's the mistake. It wasn't real <laughs> science unless you're doing science all over the world. Mm. Yeah, um, also, it's like, no, no, no. Oh, you don't understand. Social Darwinism was bad, so it was a grievance study, turns mm. out. I, 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 who knew it was a grievance study? We do now, of course, because we know better. Uh, but back then, of course, they didn't know. Fortunately, we have the long, wiggish run of the development through history to know that we had to make those mistakes back then. So we knew mm. for sure that we couldn't, like, make someone into a scullery maid by measuring their brain pan. Well, and once again, they've just, like, massively missed the point because, like, the whole point is that, yeah, there's nothing, like, inherently wrong with science as a discipline, but that people are bringing their own, like, moral outlooks and assumptions to science and thereby applying science in ways which are bad. Like, uh-huh. no one is saying, like, oh, there's something wrong with, like, measuring the boiling point of water. People are saying, like, it's bad to then be like, oh, we've now got this boiling substance. Why don't we just tip it on some black people? Like, that's the problem. <laughs> that was all science for, like, 200 years, too. <laughs> Basically. Yeah, the Manhattan Project wasn't science. That, that was ideology. Yeah. Mm. Um, 
And there's the other thing, right? Like, that's writing as though social Darwinism and scientific racism have stopped simply mm-hmm. because they're bad ideas. No, some of their more overt manifestations have gone underground, but we still are, for example, testing people, like Nate, you were saying earlier, uh, testing people for job applications based on sets of data that are just a bunch of white men. But also, I mean, some of the scientific racism that they're decrying in this op-ed has been very overtly encouraged on the same website that this is being published on. Yes. Like, there have been mm. full-throated defenses of phrenology. Literally phrenology. Phrenology itself in <laughs> Quillette. So the idea they're like, oh, it's really bad. I mean, we did publish it yesterday, but we've, we've today's a new day. The sun came up. We realized maybe it's not so good. All my articles where I defended the practice of phrenology were lessons. <laughs> exactly. What's Fail interesting forward. as well is that, that people don't distinguish between the scientific method and any particular conversation about science. So yes, scientific method, if you follow it, mm, yes, truth, we love it, we love love, love a little bit of tasty truth there. But um, if I'm trying to convince you of my point, or if I've like written a paper, then rhetoric comes into play in persuasion. There's this fantastic uh, economist called Deirdre McCloskey who wrote a book called The Rhetoric of Economics, where she went through like the last 20, 30 years of economics papers and analyze them as a literary text. She was like, these are the metaphors they use. These are like the, the appeals to authority. This is where you persuade it. And she makes the point that like, if you're a scientist and you're writing a paper and you cite another scientist's paper in which they've done an experiment, unless you've repeated their experiment yourself, you're basically making an argument from authority. So yes, scientific method, mm, we love it, very, very tasty, it gives us lots of lovely toasters mm-hmm. and atomic bombs and all kinds of wonderful things and you know, razors that shave your brain smooth. But um, any kind of conversation where I'm persuading you of the truth of what I'm saying, there's going to be some philosophy in there somewhere. Mm. Mm. Well, because it's philosophy t- tends to come in to answer these whys. Well, why am I persuading you? To what end? And again, the scientists, they have an answer for that as well. They're just they're they're trying mm. to edge they're trying to edge you out in every at every way. They're um they're doing a stick and move. Um. So here is further from this argument. Uh. Sorry. Here is further from this article. As Sam Harris has argued in his book, The Moral Landscape. <laughs> the Moral Love Landscape. Love it. The Ugh. famous, oh, what it, it's like uh, Plato, Socrates, and my boy Sam. Exactly. <laughs> so as, as Sam Harris argued in his genius book, the underlying value most people agree upon is that some form of human flourishing is an intrinsic good. Brilliant. He's nailed it. He's <laughs> done, we're done. We could go, nailed it, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> and that we can define mm. human flourishing objectively. Um, it's just brain. It's just brain shit, isn't it? Right? Yeah. Just you just measure. I just uh, you know I've built this machine mm. that measures flourishing out of ten, and I put it on your brain, and then oh, that's it. I've mm. solved it. Yeah, it's, that's it's, a ten out of ten flourish right there. Basically, yeah. no, it basically Sam Harris is just going through the conceptual uh, framework of the Scientology e-reader. Yeah, I mean <laughs> I built my brain flourish detection machine. It's showing that I'm at a ten out of ten, so you should listen to me. And it's showing all these Muslim women who've chosen to wear the niqab. They're they're all at a zero out of ten, which is why we should bomb Yemen. Mm. Yeah. Exactly. Look, this is airtight. This is airtight. Um, so he says that he knows that some form of human flourishing is an intrinsic good rather than, say, aesthetics because of the following airtight argument. Okay, hit would, me. A, would anyone argue that... Be, that Alice, not now. <laughs> would, would anyone argue that because beauty is the most important good in the world, it might be good to shoot innocent people in the head because the resulting stream of blood is aesthetically pleasing? This is basically you wouldn't download a car. Yeah, well, like, it's just... <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, I think and, and one of these things that the scientists, much as the, um, let's say, liberal policy wonks like to do, is use these absurd examples. 
Like, uh, oh, Jeremy, Jeremy Corbyn wants to fund the NHS a little bit more equals gulags. So well, they- Tim philosophers are like the Joker, right? It's yeah. like, oh, well, as soon as you get interested in like aesthetics, no, you won't become interested in like the works of Titian or something. You will become interested in like murder in order to do like weird like finger painting with the blood. Yes, yeah. The obviously. only people who care about beauty for its own sake are like serial killers who leave yeah. cryptic notes. Mm. 100%. What, but what Sam, what Sam Harris is trying and to reply, do here, guys. what Sam Harris is trying to do here is make the point that because we have a moral intuition that no matter how aesthetically pleasing it is, if that someone's blood leaving their shot head might be, that it is still we can all agree that it's better to not kill them. I'm I'm just glad he got to see Joker. Like, <laughs> well, because the thing the thing that it, it's here is like he's making this absurd absurd comparison that bears absolutely no relationship to anything to illustrate an abstract point that's not really arguing anything. Well, yeah, it, it seems to be this this idea that. Uh, you say this is good, but here's an, an insanely cherry-picked example that could never exist in real life that no sane person would make. And But because we agree that's bad, your initial point is also bad. Yes. And it's like, I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I don't want to go reducto ad absurdum here, but it's just one of those things where like, this, does, this doesn't strike me as a particularly serious argument. This is just like, yeah. oh, you like good things? What if I told you the good things are bad? QED owned <laughs> yeah. Well, in fairness, we've taken like a very small piece of his argument in the moral landscape. Like, he, He's saying here that like everyone agrees that human flourishing is, is the best thing, right? Um, mm. He's like saying, well, you know, nobody would say that beauty is the best thing or, or that, you know, like crisps mm. are the best thing. Unless human flourishing was produced by beauty. Yeah, exactly. You know, but that's what he doesn't consider. He like, doesn't consider at all. Yeah, he's like, well, the, 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 where the real problems come in is the next step where he says, and human flourishing is something that can be measured in X, Y, Z way that we don't really need to think critically about at all. Yeah. Mm. Human flourishing is basically measured by um, how many times you nut. It's, yeah. it's measured right. by the lie detector they hook Mo up to on that one episode of The Simpsons. <laughs> but how many times you nut has to be over a hundred because that's science and everything yeah, else. Is exactly. But it's also funny, Ollie, to have you critique it this way because ultimately we realize that our entire show hinges on us doing the straw man argument nonstop, like yeah. in a funny way, yeah. in a way that we like. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, basically we are kind of cherry picking. This his is argument. an entertainment I don't know show. why. I don't know why I'm in such a thorough mood today. <laughs> yeah. Usually I'm much more inclined to just give, just mm. take the piss. <laughs> So, we, we, we sort of have established this, right? But we can also talk about why this is important. And I'm going to go back to 2006, when Harvey Mansfield, student of, of noted newly minted corpse Harold Bloom, uh, wrote this. Ladies and gentlemen, dye some highlights into your hair and rip your jeans. Pawn <laughs> some Etnies trainers, because it is 2006. Yeah. We're listening to Good Charlotte. And he, Actually, no, we're listening yeah, to... No, you, we, we have a crush on the saxophone player in the Zootons. Oh yeah, yeah. We're listening to Valerie by the Zootons. Yeah, yeah I'm exactly. Thirteen years old, and the I world have a crush has... on Heather, who sits next to me in geography. Mm-hmm. The, world, yeah. the world has fallen in love with Jessica Simpson again. Heather, if you're listening, uh, <laughs> get, get in touch. It's it's about science. <laughs> Look, get in touch, but a hundred times or more. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I'll, going back to 2006, and this is Harvey Mansfield's book. Manliness. Uh. Now, if you know anything about Harvey Mansfield, Wait, you would, he would know about manliness. <laughs> <laughs> like well, uh, basically, Harvey Mansfield just likes to write um, like translations of comments on translations of Machiavelli, where he likes to sort of imagine that Machiavelli was a secret liberal instead of an aggrieved poster. He's mm. essentially like <laughs> David. He's basically like, what if David Brooks had an academic career? Um, mm-hmm. So, in his new book, um, Mansfield states that manliness can be defined as confidence in a situation of risk and that women innately don't like to compete, are risk-averse, less abstract, and too emotional. And so he can make a scientific definition of what manliness is on the basis of what he imagines women do. Mm. Mm, That seems very normal. That seems like a very normal... That seems like the action of a guy who fucks. Absolutely. Definitely seems like the... um 
the writing of someone who has confidence in a situation of risk, right? Yeah, please mm. don't, do not criticize me, or you hate science. <laughs> exactly. Um, and at that, but that's the thing. Like, you can see that it's true because it's all around you, and you shouldn't ask why it might not be true or what forces might be producing it, because you just take the world as a priori just right in front of you, and then your job is to sort of work out the implications of whatever it is that you've seen without really asking why any of it's there. It's weird that confidence in a situation of risk is is consistent with not understanding the risk. Mm. <laughs> or, or with being full. Like, mm. <laughs> like, like, you, like you could, yes, you're being very, very, very manly by standing in the middle of no man's land and like, just looking yeah. around you. <laughs> I, I think you could do like a fascinating like Nazi style experiment with a guy like this where you just like from birth lock him in a room where all he has access to is like the worst hentai. And so he grows up to a point where he has to be like the huge glistening titties. What does that mean for the human That's, condition? Um, he never questions why the huge Twitter. glistening titties. People <laughs> <laughs> watching my channel again, haven't you? Uh, yes, <laughs> indeed. Um, and like this is the thing. This is that's the sort of more political, self-serious version. But it also happens with the I fucking love science people as well. It's like when 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 Neil deGrasse Tyson, who we've returned to, mm. says something like, "Quote: In my day, the word awesome was reserved for things like curing polio and walking on the moon, not food or TV shows." Well, actually, it wasn't really your day, was it, Neil? Because the day is actually just the Earth turning on its axis of twenty-three point five <laughs> degrees, and we haven't actually found a way to isolate whose day it is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but what what he means is that oh, the stupid tastes of ordinary people are are stupidly holding humanity back, and if only they would get less stupid like me, then humanity wouldn't be in such a bad position. Because two and a half men is the thing that caused the sovereign debt crisis. <clears throat> I'm imagining I, a horrible Rick and Morty episode where they go to a planet entirely of Neil deGrasse Tyson's. Yeah. <laughs> well, that would that would just make everyone who loves Rick and Morty just come immediately. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, hang on. Neil deGrasse Tyson's wife gives birth to their child, and she's like, "Neil, look, isn't isn't she amazing?" No, she's not amazing. She's a baby. She is merely the product of human reproduction. So far, she has achieved absolutely nothing. <laughs> Call me back in 25 years when she's achieved something. Please don't ask me about my sexual harassment allegations. No. <laughs> That's ideology, not science. That's all, exactly. of, all of those things those people are saying is ideology is because they hate science. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also a profoundly stupid point because, again, it just takes, it just takes the world as it is. You know, it's, um, what would this be? This would be like thrownness, right? That you're just, you're thrown into the world and you're just, you're just looking at it, and you're sort of taking it as it is, and you're saying, well, those stupid people like the stupid shows, and I know the science would do the smart thing, and so that's why society's bad. But it misses the point that, like, network executives, not people, decide what goes on TV, and that's based on what network executives decide people might like. And so it's a worthwhile hypothesis that both you, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and network executives just have a thinly veiled contempt for ordinary people, and so make degrading and stupid culture for them to consume. I guess, I mean, is this something he tweeted? Yes. I mean, whomst among us has not tweeted something ill-considered? Mm. Um, no, if, if it wasn't Neil deGrasse Tyson, I'd, examples, be, um, I'd be more willing to be, to be slightly, slightly forgiving. But I think that's really revealing of the, um, of, of the point of view that, that, so, that society is dumb and I'm smart. And if only society were smart like me, then we wouldn't have all this politics. It's basically, I mean, it reminds me, I'm not going to say it absolutely is, but it reminds me of the sort of statue Twitter argument in the sense that 
the people who show up to basically denigrate anything that they perceive as not being canonical and that like anything that's popular or anything that that espouses something that isn't related to greco-roman sculpture for example or like renaissance paintings is somehow low culture and and, and this always ties into a weird like white nationalist kind of conception of, of the world but invariably it's just it's weird pedantry and it's weird kind of like one-upmanship about a perception of cultural value and like I, I'm not surprised that Neil deGrasse Tyson, like the patron saint of being pedantic online, is going to espouse stuff that's adjacent to that. But it's weird to see where that goes. And you'd like to think that someone, at least a, a, who you'd hope sees the ripple effects of what he says in the real world, would be like, okay, well, maybe this is a little bit, this is just a little bit simplistic. But invariably, like, I don't know, he's made a brand out of being this person who is going to be pedantic and is going to, going to come in to remind you that actually, uh, Actually, it's not amazing that you know this video happened where a cow made a sound, so like a man screaming. Because actually, amazing things are like a nuclear reactor. Mm, it's know, like or something along uh, those oh, lines. Oh, you were watching Fleabag. That's cool. It lowers glasses theatrically. I was just reading about the moon landing. <laughs> <laughs> um, They're all Wikipedia it, guys. He made a show himself, and he? he made Cosmos. Yes, huh. he did. Where he so flies I guess, a like, spaceship into a bear's vagina. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, if he's yeah. if he's made what? Cosmos and he's put <laughs> like a lot to the of bear? was it okay? <laughs> no, it don't. Um, he's made Cosmos, which like had a big production value. You obviously put a lot of effort into it, so I'd probably be pretty upset as well if I'd made a TV show like that and then like I don't know, Family Guys like beating him in ratings and stuff. Like, oh yeah, I can understand why he'd be like a, a, a little bit bitter. About if, that. if there's one show that would also fly a spaceship into a bear's vagina, it is Family Guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is the real horseshoe theory. <laughs> I think the, the important thing to remember and why you should never take any of these people very seriously is I think something Ollie has revealed, which is they're just posters. They're posters who want faves, mm. uh, but just they want they want to be uh, clapped at to be like goody good boys. But additionally, like. I think we can ask. Unlike this podcast, yes. Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. no, we want to be booed, baby. Um, we welcome this- your hatred. <laughs> is your hatred pure? <laughs> but, like, uh, the so- views of the hosts of uh, of, uh, <laughs> of Trash Feature do not represent the views of Wally Thorne. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, they do. Uh, so I think that we cannot, we can't talk about this. We can't move on from this without talking about what the political goal is of scientism and what what's why scientism is so popular, right? Um, and I think you can't understand that without understanding uh, so-called the so-called squared hoax, which, in brief, was um, a, a group of academics, uh, James Lindsay, Peter Bogosian, and Helen Pluckrose, um, who essentially wrote 20 nonsense papers and then submitted them to various gender studies or post-colonial studies uh, journals. And then when I believe three of them were actually published, they said, aha, this proves that all like queer theory or anything vaguely postmodern is just nonsense. And that's where the term grievance studies was coined. And there was an, an enormous amount of triumphalism over this um, that sort of ignores a lot of the realities of what goes into, say, publishing a paper in an academic journal frequently that you pay to be considered for. But there was a lot of triumphalism over this because I think their goal is the annihilation and discrediting of any field of study that is not merely concerned with, like, finding a new atom. Um, because, like, why did they? Why do these people do what they do? I mean, I don't know. Maybe these three had just a lot of personal resentment for humanities departments where no one wanted to sit with them at lunch. But like, it was celebrated because it reassured people in power that all these things that were questioning their nice, tidy, positivist, reductionist worldview, and 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 where all of their hierarchies were basically natural, was actually illegitimate, and that they were safe from criticism. In effect, they were creating a safe space. Whoa. Three out of twenty is not even that many. No, like, I can't. And, and I can't do maths at all. But that—that's like what's three times five? Mm. Three. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I, God, I hope that's didn't, right. Didn't Paulette <laughs> get hoaxed recently as well? And by their own logic or whatever, get totally discredited. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's happened a couple of times, actually, yeah, where, mm. where people have, have invented fake stories and they've, they've bit mm-hmm. Lion Sinker because they sound really racist and really objective. And so, of course, Quillette wants to publish it's almost that. almost as though yeah. Quillette will publish anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's this, but the, the reason that it's being celebrated and the, what, the, what a lot of sort of, let's say, right-wing media was able to do with this is they were able to say, ah, look, that obscure academic journal published a uh, paper on um, why dogs having sex in the park is bad. Um, and so therefore, dogs. Yeah, therefore, we don't have to listen to like uh, trans people when they tell you they are who they say they are, or we don't have to listen to like Black Lives Matter when it says that police killings aren't exactly, you know, normal and fine. Mm. No it's- passports for trans people. <laughs> Wait, as, yes. a, as a trans people, I do have to say that listening to us is very annoying, but <laughs> you still have to do it. So, owned. <laughs> but it's also one of these things where it's like entire governments have oriented their economic policy around the laugher curve, and somehow that doesn't discredit the concept of economics as a discipline. But because apparently some not particularly highly regarded journals published stuff that you described as pay to play, Riley, like that somehow discredits the discipline. Like that seems to me like a weirdly right wing argument to say, see, it's all made up uh, based on a few nitpicked things that we've managed to cobble together. I it's mean, also a very institutional view of how philosophy progresses, which, which you know, a lot of philosophers are guilty of as well. But they say, oh, because the journals published it, the whole discipline is rotten. Whereas, you know, actually, if you look into the history of something like queer theory, and perhaps some handsome person is making a video about queer theory at this very moment that will be out when this podcast comes out. Robert uh, Downey Jr. Yes, <laughs> I got that one a lot. Um, yeah, you know, if you look into the history of something like queer theory, it's been shaped uh, quite a lot by people in the streets and by activists. Um, so th- this idea that philosophy only comes from the academic ivory tower and people who are out of touch, it's just mm. it's just like not true at all. FIFA <laughs> street like... philosophy. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, also, I mean, you jest, but yeah. Is it is it possible that because as we know, often when, for example, as, uh, I imagine that a lot of these a lot of these academics who are like really het up about like academic disciplines they don't consider worthy are quite a lot like the sort of people who write articles in publications such as the Spectator in terms of general outlook. And if there's one thing we've learned about Spectator articles is that they usually begin with a parody paragraph that states what they consider to be a ridiculous position, which is usually completely correct. <laughs> and if the article ended there, it would be correct. So. So it's possible to me that these the academics may have actually accidentally written good papers by like <laughs> trying to go, oh, what would they think? Oh, racism is bad. Yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, we'll write that one down. Yeah. Uh, what else? Oh, yeah, you can't determine people's performance by measuring their skulls. Yeah, we'll put that one in there. Yeah. <laughs> ah, they'll publish this. They'll look like such fools. <laughs> but- Given an award for it. Well, yeah. No, no, no. Sarcastic. <laughs> Get the Nobel Prize. Sarcastically <laughs> accepting the Nobel Prize because you like have made... So you- significant steps in ending racism but you were making the jack off motion the whole time (laughs) um right but that's that's one other thing before we move before we do move on right i think a lot of these people one of the reasons like ollie why i think they're so in love with the official philosophy that the institutionalized philosophy is that they're in love with definitions Mm. philosophy is what happens in the philosophy department uh, science is what happens in the science department. Anything that happens in the bar is socializing. Anything that happens on the street is just a distraction, et cetera, et cetera. It's the same thing where, like, it's, it's ultimately, like, the dumbest person who argues like this is Ben Shapiro, where if you say something like, well, actually, a, a mother's right to terminate a, a, a pregnancy, blah, 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 is this, he just responds to the dictionary definition and is like, well, 
That handles that as though the dictionary is just, and these categories are just naturally occurring and meaningful. Mm. Well, the dictionary was handed to Moses on stone tablets. That's how it was. Uh, let, let's say, hypothetically, you're counting to 100. Let, let's say you're counting to 150. How are you going to do that? How are you going to do that? You, you get to 100, and then you, you run out of stuff that's not science. So you have to start using science. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Ben Ben does moral philosophy at speed. Like, he's on moral mm. speed just philosopher. Like, and he, he, Ben is a man We're who does- We're not saying he's on speed. <laughs> ben is a man who does philosophy in, in public. Um. In my opinion, poorly, and and I think I can prove Get that. Get a room, Ben. <laughs> and and I think I have proved that on my show. Um, but like, it's interesting that that he has disdain for things like that. When again, like he's doing it, and and the same is true of of uh, of Jordan Peterson as well, whom I've also talked about on my show. Um, a man who who tries to do philosophy, and and I think uh, one of the things I regret about my episode I did in Jordan Peterson is that I went into incredible depth about like how Petersonian ontology is just like very contradictory. I've been, I've, I have. I think gone into more depth on Jordan Peterson's philosophy than perhaps anyone else has ever, including him. Um, whereas actually, you don't actually need to go that deep to realize that it's very silly. Um, accidentally improving Jordan Peterson's philosophy. On the one yeah. hand, and uh, Zizek on the other, where you like decide to take all of this at face value and do like a detailed philosophical inquiry, and Zizek takes one look at him and is just like, "Yeah, I will sh- 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 I will sit here and I will make fun of him." At the 10th anniversary edition of 12 Rules for Life, like, thanks me in the forward. <laughs> no, no, this is the one thing I didn't well, want to I'm listening happen. to this man who cannot win an argument with a two-year-old. Who is that? <laughs> Romanian Zizek. <laughs> Romanian Joker Zizek. Um, so I, I, we I live wa- in a society. I want to close out. I want no. to close this out with a, with a reading. An example of some beautiful scientism that I found recently. Oh, good. In the Times, of course. Where else would it be? Hmm. Victorian times were happiest study of national mood finds. <laughs> Which Victorians did they interview for this particular study? <laughs> oh, they measured intrigued. their brain with the brain fulfillment machine that yeah. Sam Harris invented. Ah, they dug them up. <laughs> <laughs> they accidentally only read half of the book, A Tale of Two Cities. <laughs> it was the best we didn't have times. Time. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Direct quote. Direct quote from Charles Dickens. So, sorry, Pastor, sorry, yeah. that, that's witness. That's what first-hand witness testimony right sorry. there. Are you suggesting that when you say he read half the book, you mean that it was cut at some point lengthwise? Yes. Reading like, half well, of every sentence. Yeah. <laughs> so here's how that. Here's how they did it. Maybe it's just because people love swabbing chimneys. Um, mm. On June twenty twenty-three and me on a chimney. Yeah. On June twenty-second, eighteen eighty-seven. The Times reported how 26,000 children had, quote, disported themselves from noon to dewy eve in Hyde Park to mark Queen Victoria's Golden Jubilee. That's such a Fauntleroy-ass quote of themselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to disport <laughs> myself from noon to dewy eve. Damn, we used to be so fancy back in the day. That must be why we were so happy. And according to an analysis of the national mood over the past 200 years, it was the most content Britain had been. Do we mm. want to know how they carried out the analysis? Damn, back in the day we were content, and now all we're doing is content. Mm. We live Makes in a society. Mm, it does. Do we want to know how they measured the skulls of people in the past? Yes. Researchers at Warwick and Glasgow Universities... No. Sorry, Alice. Uh. And at the Alan Turing Institute in London have tracked the happiness of four countries, Britain, the US, Italy, and Germany, by analyzing the tone and language used in millions of books and newspaper articles. Springtime for Hitler. (laughs) Well, that's that's the strange thing. It would find that, yes, it was probably happier because it was just tone. Damn. 
it suck. It sucks when they don't analyze all the libraries of actual Victorian literature written by actual Victorians, which is just I'm dying of rickets over and over and over again. <laughs> Absolutely miserable time. Yeah, all yeah. work and no play is exactly what I'm doing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the studies suggest that the 1880s, when the British Empire was approaching its peak, was the country's most optimistic decade. The most big hair decade of the 19th century. <laughs> it's very, very telling that they say the 1880s when the empire was at its height, rather than the 1880s, when anything else was going on. Many, many other things were happening in the 1880s. Mm. But it's very, very interesting they say, people were happy when the empire was happening. Mm. Yeah, they were. And, uh, but, but, Reorganize the Republic into the first galactic empire! <laughs> we all remember the hits of the 1880s, like Mao, 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 how do you like it? <laughs> I mean, to be fair, that's the 1950s. Yeah, yeah. Just, that's actually uh, we must 19- have been doing something to them in the 1880s. But yes, oh, the rebellion was in the 1950s. Extremely I do know letters from Kenya. We were defo in Kenya in the 1880s. Um, for sure. Doing some shit. So, some musical number about it's a shame about these sepoys or something yeah. like that. Mm. The, but the stu- they, they, they're saying, like, yeah, in the 1880s, everyone was happy. And uh, anyway, we're just going to look at what was happening to make them all happy. Oh, wait, but- sorry. Bore, bore, bore. How do you like it? How do you uh, like it? There good. we go. Yeah. So, I did this like this to, is the this- reductionist view of history that works. Is I don't know what the British Empire was doing at this time, but it was evil. So, mm. so I don't know if... Um, so famously, there was a significant amount of migration from uh, what was called the Pale of Settlement, basically like the the Jewish areas of the Russian Empire because of pogroms in the late part of the 19th century. And a lot of people who were fleeing persecution in the Russian Empire went to uh, went to Western Europe. Many came to the United Kingdom, and many also went onward from the United Kingdom or from elsewhere in Europe to the United States. Now, famously, New York City, which was like the hub of immigration from across the Atlantic, which was really shitty. Like, there's a whole tenement museum in New York City about how fucking awful it was at this time. Uh, many, I. I I've read accounts of this that people who emigrated from the UK and then to to New York, basically Jewish refugees, commented on, wow, New York tenements are awful, but nothing could be as fucking bad as Whitechapel. Because it was well, so shitty here that even like the horrible like nightmare cholera slums of New York City were like, God, what a paradise compared to fucking well, London. They heard that in 140 years time, there was going to be this guy called Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> <laughs> so... Here's the thing, Nate, Nate, it does sort of respond to this. The researchers admit that the era was also notable for high rates of disease, child labor, inequality, and poor housing. But spirits were bright. Uh, oh, they talking about the, the, ghost, the ghost of Christmas? The, oh, sorry, it says, spirits among the reading classes, at least, were bright. Oh, it does say that. Okay, yeah. so that's not just me noticing. That's because the only people who were writing books were named like Jeffrey of Nonsworth and had like fucking huge palatial estates where their families had owned land for hundreds of years. I mean, like, come on. And they were happy. Yeah, like they, they were very if, happy. If, if, you, if you weren't happy in the 1880s, you didn't read a newspaper. You read a mm. series of like pictographic pamphlets about which sex worker had been murdered that week. I <laughs> have had a most droll Sabbath enjoying oneself upon the croquet lawn. I molested a peacock. <laughs> what a fantastic! What a fantastic decade it's been for the common for the common man. <laughs> I, I feel like the um, Nate, your point about New York being more livable. Uh, I think it was just a more whimsical city because you still had Tammany Hall and, as discussed previously, like shaving hobos to have them vote a second and third <laughs> time. Yeah. Whereas here we just had like serial murders and cholera. Mm. Exactly. So, New York was all like little boys in caps calling you Mister as they exactly, tried to sell you a newspaper. Exactly. Whimsy. Yeah, it turns out one of their friends, though, he was robbing you of all your nickels. Oh, damn. <laughs> so, um, the researchers used a database of 14,000 words, which were scored at a scale of 1 to 9, according to how happy they were. <laughs> Why 1 to 9? I don't know! 
Who good, uses good that question. scale? It's, it's to keep right. it as economics. Philosophy? Who cares? Right. Mm. So, nine. Nine is the maximum happy. Yeah. yeah. I, you, no, get into the times. Get in touch. I will design you a happiness yeah. scale that goes to ten if you pay me twenty thousand pounds. Well, okay. we can make people just ten percent happier just like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this scale goes to eleven. Just love <laughs> oh, interesting. They use the word chartreuse. That's a four. <laughs> Chartreuse is four out of nine happy. That's what this article is saying. What does chartreuse even mean? It's a color. Oh, okay. And also a liquor. Well, it's only, only fancy people know that color. It's not what Charterhouse used to be called when it was fancier. <laughs> even fancier. We can make it fancier. <laughs> exactly. Yes, a, a liquor exclusively for old Carthusians. <laughs> <laughs> of course you know the noun for fucking <laughs> Charterhouse. But what um, color is the so- tie, Riley? Uh, mm. I don't fucking know. I've never worn a tie. Um, that's untrue. That's not categorically <laughs> untrue. Thing. I've worn many ties. Listeners, oh, Riley's wearing, wearing three tie ties tie right now. All. I know. Mm. I only wear ties around my head because I'm a party animal, but I'm still at the because office. Because you're a business ninja. <laughs> um, so... Uh, allowances were made, of course, for shifts in the meaning of certain words and habits of the public, which I assumed they did was, well... Um, we're going to have chartreuse be a four out of nine happy in 1880, but we're going to take it down to a two by 1950 <laughs> to allow for a shift in the mood of the public. I'm just imagining Wittgenstein reading the sentence, allowances were made for the changing of meaning of words. It's like, oh my God, I've wasted my whole life. Oh, you, you can just allow for that. You can just do it and it still works. Oh God. I have to completely reverse my entire career again. And Bertrand Russell's just like, Wittgenstein kicking down his machine that measures happiness that goes to a scale of 14.5 for some reason. <laughs> the results of our the results of our study, and don't forget, the study only looks credible if you're stupid because it involves numbers. Remember, the study involves assigning words a number out of nine for how happy they are. Mm. Suggest well, that's o- algebra, which is science. <laughs> suggest only a weak link between economic productivity and happiness. We are richer than our Victorian forebears, but less cheerful. I also have another really funny thing to point out, which is that uh, there was recently they the, I, I want to say it was in London, but they discovered the body of uh, somebody who had basically been killed in the, like the medieval period, when uh, what they think was was probably a murder. But one of the comments they made was that uh, his teeth were pretty good because I mean people used their jaws for stuff, and like you didn't have access to sugar, and so like the development of people's mouths weren't that bad. Whereas the absolute worst period of time to have have teeth in human history apparently was the 18th and 19th century in London because mm-hmm. it just fucking sucked and people's teeth rotted out of their head because of so much sugar and yeah. zero access to mm-hmm. dental care. And so it's one of those things. It's like uh, I mean they literally just had people's mouths rotting out because of like horrendous fucking lack of hygiene. But like everyone was happy. happy. They were mm-hmm. really they were, happy mm-hmm. well, hang because on, they say- got they got fucked up on gin. Like what was it? William yeah. Hogarth great. And and everyone them. just liked doing that. So what, 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 we, what the conclusion that's drawn here, and this is by Thomas Hills from the University of Warwick, says, what's remarkable is that national subjective well-being, all of those words doing an enormous <laughs> amount of heavy lifting. Um, Damn, power lifting world champions. Is there. incredibly resilient to wars. Unless you die. <laughs> or even unless you just have a recent memory of the fact that, like, I don't know, some of the largest protest movements in history happened to protest the Iraq War. But I can't also, imagine why uh, a study of newspapers 
would reveal that newspapers were being optimistic about the war. Because well, the, I, news, the I, newspapers, I can't imagine there's any reason why a national newspaper would would write optimistic messages about well, a national conflict. It's because they're written okay. democratically by everyone. Everyone votes on well, each no, word the based on how many are out of nine. People were so happy. It's a mad the, lib. People were so happy in the 1880s because only one guy survived the Third Afghan War, and he was just like, "Oh, it was brilliant." And so, as a result, mm. no yeah. complaints. Everyone they could survey from that war was really happy about it. Okay, so there's there's, there's two things that are going on here. First of all. They're assuming that what makes people happy and doesn't, you can only correctly assess by doing weird analyses of the stuff they write and not by what they literally state they do and don't want. Correct. And B, also there's like some fucked up logical sleight of hand here. Because you go back to the bit where they say like, we are richer than our Victorian forebears. Well, we're richer in general because we now have a higher GDP and our society for all of its faults is more equal than Victorian society, right? <laughs> a very but, high bar. But actually, At time of recording. The, the people that they are studying i.e. people who wrote newspapers are much richer than the average person is now in 20, 2019. Milo, 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 Milo. They've given you a bunch of numbers and you're just doing grievance studies at them. Mm. I should publish you in a journal, one of 20. And they're now using this argument as to like, well, this is why we should go back to the Victorian era and make everyone poor again. I mean, I don't think they're- Apart from the rich. I think what they're saying, they're not necessarily saying that, but what they are trying to sort of advance is the argument of- People are actually happier when they're in war and don't really need to be rich. Exactly. I mean, we've all read the po- like that poem, uh, Dolce et Decorum Est, which is about how awesome a war is. Um, what's remarkable is that national subjective well-being is incredibly resilient to wars. Even temporary economic booms and busts have little long-term effect. We can see the American Civil War in our data, the revolutions of 48 across Europe, the Roaring Twenties, and the Great Depression. But people quickly returned to their previous levels of subjective well-being after these events were over. Our national happiness is like an adjustable spanner that we open and close to calibrate our experiences against our recent past. We'll have to open and close spanners. Like a caliper. Yeah, it's a caliper, but for how happy you are. I mean, I just, and you I'm can just... tell because it opens from one to nine, and you know how open it is based on what words people are I, I using. I mean, like, if there were a nuclear war tomorrow, assuming it didn't strike London, then, then the next page, next day's newspaper front page would have enormous font announcing the war, and then there would be a skybox on top of it about 10 best soups for autumn. And it's like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the idea that you're going to look at this and be like, oh, well, they were just so happy because of what was in newspapers. I mean, newspapers exist so that they can sell them. Like, they're mm. not just going to be like, wow, someone died of cholera and it fucking sucked. I mean, like, I, yeah. I also assume that that was so common as though to not warrant notice. Yeah, that, that was well, the Victorian vibe check, was just dying of cholera. Uh, <laughs> but it also just completely fails to account for, like, what actually happens, which is like, oh, it's really weird. Like, you know, after World War II, uh, you know, the, all the economies picked up and there were, like, jobs for everyone. It's like, yeah, because we had to rebuild all the shit that was fucked and half the people were dead. Like, they seem to look at this weird shit as though it was like, like, the war was just this crazy adventure that everyone went on. Like, people got home from the Holocaust and were like, oh, boy, what a doozy you're not gonna believe what happened to me back there like that's not how it happened it's like a drill tweet it's like yes several million people died but also a lot of people got to work on time so who can say whether it's good or bad <laughs> exactly, yeah. and, and indeed um uh, noticing that we've gone we've gone for a, a pretty good amount of time i might sort of bring us around to our close which is that this not just this view of science but this way of understanding reality of processing what's going on around you I mean, where you can just reason from whatever is in front of your face. This is where we get like the Liz Truss argument that development of society equals more deliveroo. Like things are easier for me, so they must be better overall. And it's the intellectual equivalent of Homer Simpson trying to find Lincoln's gold in the White House by counting four score and 20 from an arbitrary starting location. Yes. 
I agree. <laughs> I fully fucking agree. Like feeling that dead air there, night. Yeah. I, I just look at it more that, I don't know. I'm going to defer to Ollie's take on this because you're the actual philosopher. I'm just a dude who, who wants to use fancy words, but this just seems like- you mean a, you're a philosopher. This seems like hey. a weird ex- exercise in sophistry for the point of basically trying to encourage people and say, even if it gets bad, it's actually good because when it was bad, it was good too. And to me, like the, I, I don't know, we've had a lot of complaints on here about British British journalism, but this just strikes me as the kind of thing that... Well, I, I'm not necessarily talking about the journalism. I'm talking about the whole run of what we've been talking about today, mm. where all of this, just the random counting, the counting of stuff and the assigning it of values, the just the decision that, well, if you're arguing against what I'm doing by counting, you must be against the concept of counting, obviously. Mm. It all rolls up politically into into the world of more Deliveroo equals more development equals more freedom equals better because it is unable to challenge that sort of long upward march of progress narrative that ultimately has given us like, I don't know, a slightly faster phone. It basically implies that the people who get crushed by this, you know, underfoot during this ostensible forward momentum just don't matter enough to warrant mention. Precisely. Exactly. Mm. And Deliver that's, science. Yeah, yeah, I mean, many people may have died in the Great War, but do you hear them complaining about it in newspapers <laughs> afterwards? You don't. <laughs> you certainly don't. I mean, a guy might have died bringing me my Deliveroo meal, but I got fed, and that was very good, and I really liked it. <laughs> and you're going to write lots of little, like positive little words on that nine mm. scale thing uh, yeah. about your Deliveroo experience. Absolutely, you're going to use mm. nine out of nine positive words. However, no, so we know the only source we have on the First World War is by the guy who owned the Vickers machine gun factory. Wall to wall, best four years of my life, champs. <laughs> it was so. the best of times. Nothing follows. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the so. best of times. Stop. <laughs> so uh, I think with, with all of that being said, um, I can say this was a real nine out of nine experience having you on. <laughs> 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 uh, mm. um, and that uh, where should people check you out online? Uh, my name is Ollie Thorne. I run a YouTube channel called Philosophy Tube. If this show comes out on the 29th, then I will probably just have had an episode out on Queer Theory, which is also a musical uh, and which also contains a personal revelation about my life. So you may like to check that out. I think it's my best work yet. Mm. Love a personal Mm. revelation. Oh, you're yeah. going to love this one. Uh, and here's another personal revelation. You can get a second episode of this show every week for $5 a month on Patreon. And that's science, folks. That is quite <laughs> yeah. literally science. number doesn't go above 100, so you know what? It actually... Yeah, you can understand it without wearing mm. a coat. But the total amount of money we make is above 100. Yeah, so yeah. You, know, you, need sci- you need to be a scientist mm. to understand that. But not to do the $5 thing. No. You don't need to be a scientist to do that one. No, just do mm. that and be reassured in the knowledge that somewhere a graph is going up because of you. <laughs> Exactly. All right, everybody, let's get those graphs up, and we'll see you later in the week. Bye. Bye.